The Plumlee Pod, episode 36. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumlee Pod. Hello and welcome to the Plumley Pod. I must just say Happy New Year. Welcome to 2023. I am your host, of course, Sarah Plumley, And today I have a very special guest, so special that my special guest today is remaining anonymous and quite rightly too. When you hear what she has to say, I think you should know why. So today we have Nancy. Nancy is a wife, a mother of two girls, a business owner and entrepreneur, and she has some fairy very interesting things to tell you. Don't go anywhere. This will be well worth your while. I promise you. Nancy, Happy New Year. Welcome to the podcast. And when you're ready, please begin telling us from the very beginning your educational journey. Thank you, Sarah. Happy New Year to you too. Yes, I have two girls. They are now 10 and 12 years old. When my youngest was born, I found a book by a chap called John Taylor Gatto. And somehow managed to read it in my sleepy state. And I was just absolutely hooked on what he was saying about the American education system. So I read three or four of his books. Then I found John Holt. Then I found various things on Summerhill School and these sort of democratic schools. And I was just fascinated by it. And it just seemed like the right thing to do to sort of allow children to find their own way and, you know, find their own interests and sort of just a really nice way to bring up children. So we decided that I wouldn't go back to work after my statutory maternity leave at 10 months and that I wanted to stay and and, and be a stay-at-home mum. And we ended up moving to Spain when my daughter was 16 months old. We actually sold a house and we were between house moves and couldn't find anywhere to live. So we ended up going to Spain on holiday and we had a rule. We had one blue Ikea bag each and two dogs and drove down through Spain and we had a holiday rent for four months. And when we were out there, we, after a couple of weeks, thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, great quality of life, outdoorsy, very, very cheap. Got pregnant with number two and ended up staying there for seven years. Now, I think a lot of, because it was a very outdoorsy lifestyle, we used to go down to the beach and I'd take bags of flour and food coloring and just do loads of stuff outside. I have very strong views on mobile phones and devices for children. But I also do understand that being in a country like that, it was much easier because we weren't sort of trapped away for four months of the year in sort of dark, gloomy, you know, raining sort of where I would imagine it would be much easier to sort of fold and say, right, we'll just have a device or watch TV or whatever. You know, so we had sort of an amazing seven years. Now we started sort of unschooling. That was my attitude. I thought, just let the kids run wild. You know, as long as they were reading, didn't have devices and we were sort of busy outdoorsy doing things. That was it for their sort of primary years. I thought, you know, reading and basic maths. And then we came across a beautiful alternative school. My youngest was, well, she was a few weeks old. My eldest was two years and four months. And I just basically hadn't slept for two and a half years. It felt like, you know, sort of you know, late night sort of active kids. And I was absolutely exhausted being an expat, not having family around to help. Somebody I knew in the village told me about this school. And I was just like horrified. I was like, well, I'm not sending my children to school. And she said, no, no, it's a tiny school. There are, I think, two or three pupils there. And it's run by a lovely young couple who used to be state 
state kindergarten teachers, state primary teachers in Spain. And why don't you go and see them? And I thought, well, why not? So I went to meet this couple and it turns out they ran their school from their flat on the marina, which was opposite where we lived. And I went down there for two weeks every day with both girls sort of breastfeeding the youngest and the other one just sort of hanging out and getting used to this, you know, this school. And I came back to England because I had to do the, um, well, I was saying have to now looking back, I wouldn't, you know, for the last couple of years, but, you know, for the eight week jabs and things like that. So I flew back to England and left my youngest in this school and she had a walkie talkie so she could talk to her dad across the marina if she wanted to. And it was just lovely. And this young couple, they were sort of late 20s, but just wonderful people. And the school grew and grew. They ended up moving in with us, living in the flat in, in our house between schools. Because they were becoming so popular, they needed somewhere bigger. And we helped them find somewhere. And the school sort of, I think there are about 10, 15 children at this point. And it was still lovely. But we just decided there were a few things that happened. And one of them was this boy used to punch my daughter in the stomach, like daily. And the teachers was, they knew what was going on, but they're like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. You know, and I'm just thinking it's really not okay. And also she wasn't, my daughter wasn't speaking, you know, and I just thought, well, half the reason we're doing this is so that she can learn Spanish, but she just wasn't speaking. And, and for one reason or another, we just thought, actually, look, I'm not working. Let's just go back to homeschooling because it is fun. And we had so many nice things to do. And then we, so fast forward a couple of years, my eldest was now six years old. And I'd been teaching myself Spanish, listening to podcasts and various things. And every time she would hear a Spanish podcast, she'd pull out the plug, didn't want me speaking Spanish. And it was really strange. And I just thought, it was, and she wouldn't speak Spanish. We had a Spanish teacher come to the house. We tried so many things. And, you know, I just thought, well, this is the age and all the reading I'd done about home education and children's development and brain development. And I thought, this is the age. If they don't grasp the language by sort of six, seven, eight years old, their tongue can't form the words properly. It's sort of, they will always sound like a foreigner speaking that language. And I thought, well, look, we've lived here since she's a baby, you know. And one day, so we had a Spanish teacher come to the house for about two or three weeks, one, you know, one afternoon just to do some drawing with her. And I put her to bed and it was about 10 o'clock at night and I heard her sobbing. And my daughter, she doesn't, you know, she's really sort of stoical and doesn't really, didn't cry much. And I went in, I said, you know, what's wrong? And she was just absolutely sobbing, saying, please don't make the Spanish teacher come to the house. And it, it, it took about half an hour for her to tell me that when she was at the school when she was, you know, two, maybe three years old, she couldn't quite remember. One of the kids' older sisters had come into the school and she said, Mummy, you know, I used to draw drafts. Yep, by every day, all the time. And she said, And this girl came up to me, grabbed my picture of a giraffe and said, Because she'd been practicing girafe, that's what she, you know, giraffe. And she just shouted at my daughter, You can't speak Spanish and screwed up this picture and threw it on the floor. Now that snowballed from whenever that happened for, you know, what, three, four years that had gone into, she couldn't speak Spanish, didn't want me speaking Spanish, hated it, but she didn't have the words to explain what had happened to her. And it was just, I mean, it was heartbreaking to hear this, you know, she was sort of trying to get it out. Anyway, the next morning I'd been, I'd visited a school in the local village, a few villages away actually called Maro, which was near Necha. And it was a lovely, lovely school. It was a state run primary school. 
but it was like a free school. So the teacher, the head had autonomy over the system there quite. It was just very, it was like a hippie school, basically. There were about 40, 50 children and it was lovely and they grew vegetables. They did yoga before school. And I'd gone there a few times talking to the head and she was a lovely, lovely lady. And I phoned her the next morning. I said, hola. And she was like, hola. And I said, ¿Tiene espacio para my daughter? And she said, sí. I said, mañana, sí. So off I went the next morning to school. I said, you know, Lou, we're off to, um, we're off to school. And she said, but mummy, mummy, we homeschool. And I said, we did homeschool, but now we're going to school because you need to learn Spanish. So this was our thinking. And I just th thought, well, actually, I didn't want to just put her in school. So I went to the head and I said, can I work here? Anything. I'll just be free. You know, I'll volunteer. And she said, oh, we need book numbers, ISBN things, putting into the system. Do you want to do that? I said, absolutely, I'll do that. So off I went with my youngest at the time as well. So she just hang out in the library and my eldest went to school. And it was amazing, actually. And she had this beautiful teacher called Carme, this lovely young girl who just said to me, she understands everything. It's all in there. She understands it all. And she started speaking and it was like, gosh, this unblocking. And it was just lovely. And they were so just, it was just such a lovely environment. And I ended up sending my youngest there as well. I think it was, it must have been kindergarten or infantile, they called it over there, infantile. And it was great. It was a really lovely place. One thing and another, we decided to move back to England because of, I think Brexit was happening and we had to decide either to become resident in Spain, you know, or not. And we'd had seven amazing years and there were just so many little things that happened over the space of a few weeks that sort of pointed us to moving back to England. You know, our house was falling apart that we were renting. Our builder, who was going to do the electrics, who was a good friend of ours, he actually dropped dead. I mean, I saw him one day. He came to the house. You know, we had a drink with him and he said, yep, we're going to do this, all these electrics. And then his wife called me the next morning in, in floods and just said, he's dead. I said, I'm sorry. And she said, yes, he's dead. He died last night. And it was just, there were so many little things like this that was sort of just all came together that we just thought, because then we'd have to move out because then we, we had to get a Spanish builder and the Spanish builder said, oh, six months or more to do this house and did, you know, rewiring. And, and then we started looking for Sounds another like house. Sounds like French builders. Yeah. Well, mañana, mañana as well. And very, and I just thought, oh mm -hmm. my goodness me. <laughs> demand, we, we, demand, you know, demand. We, <laughs> and I'm not good. I'm not very patient. So, and then we found a house, beautiful house where I grew up in England for rent. And we just thought, well, it was the right time to move back. And plus, I do love British sense of humour. I, you know, I love the sort of British drivers. They all say thank you when you let them out, you know, and all these things that we've missed in Spain. And like I say, mañana, mañana, I'm not very good. I'm not very patient. So we just thought, well, actually, it'll be nice to bring the girls up where, you know, they've got grandparents, families around, and they will have roots. You know, it's like somewhere where they feel rather than where we lived in Spain. It was a beautiful, beautiful sort of agricultural backwater of Spain. But friends used to come and go, you know, they'd stay for a couple of years and go. So we thought actually it would be nice for them to have a place that they feel is their home and where they can speak the language. And, you know, it's sort of familiar. So we moved back to England and we were going to homeschool. And because we rented a house which was in the middle of nowhere, I thought, well, we want to make friends. And for us to make friends, I'd have to be driving half an hour to an hour to home ed groups. And I thought, actually, let's put them in a village school. You know, I think there were 70 children in, in the village school, the closest village. And we'll do that for maybe six months a year, make some friends, and then we'll head off to the home ed life. So here we go. <laughs> 
this is where my sort of school experience in this country started. And it was, you know, on paper, a lovely school, a little sort of Church of England school. And the head was lovely. They had chickens in the garden. It was all very outdoorsy. And so my eldest went there. There was another school two villages away that was a free school set up by parents who didn't want the cushy state, the normal sort of primary. And it had been going for about five years and it was lovely. And they, you know, they had a teepee in the classroom. They could sit on chairs in tents on the floor. They had, you know, fish tanks, guinea pigs. It was just a very lovely environment. They didn't have space in year four because they were oversubscribed already. So there were 17 children in year four and they could only take 15. So we ended up splitting up our girls. So my youngest went to year two, I think it was, in this lovely free school. And my eldest started, this was a January in 2018, I think, or January, anyway. So it was January, so it was mid-year, year four. So my eldest went to this school and she came out on the first day and she was just a mess. And she was saying, mummy, I don't know what long division is. So I was like, yeah, we haven't covered that actually <laughs> you know, in, my, in my home ed and in, in the Spanish, you know, hippie school. But I said, look, don't worry. It's fine. You know, we'll catch up. And the teacher said to me, um, she needs to know this now. She needs to know all her tables. She needs to know this, this and this. You need to do the work with her after school. And I thought, but this isn't great, is it? Because then she's going to be at school all day, then coming home to do more work. And this is just totally against everything that we've done. So I just said, well, look, you know, is there any way you could help catch her up? No, 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 we don't have the resources. You know, it has to be done in your own time. And my daughter, we had probably the worst three weeks of our lives. This is no exaggeration. She went from being the happiest, most sort of, you know, stoical, just lovely little girl, happiest child, you know, skipped everywhere to the most depressed. She cried every day after school. She cried on Sundays. Please don't make me go, mummy. Please don't make me go. I actually, under the stress that we were sort of all experiencing due to this. So, so my youngest at this point was coming home saying, I love school. Oh, it's amazing. We've got guinea pigs. I love my school. My teacher's great. Da, 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 da. So I've got these two extremes going on. The head How at my youngest school knew Sorry, what was happening. Co- Sorry to cut in. Just remind everyone because not everyone knows what year four is. So just. How old okay, the so she was moment? eight. She was eight and a half. Oh, so she was yeah eight eight and a half at this point, and younger sister saying what an amazing school I'm going to. So I was doing the drop off. It was honestly it was so stressful after this lovely blissful life in Spain, having this stress of school drops. Two different schools, both finished at the same time. I'm rushing, you know, between villages. One's super happy, one's coming out crying. Now the difference in these schools was stark. I would pick my eldest up. There were at least five, six, seven children crying after school. I got a demerit today. The stress at the pickup was immense. The free school, everyone was laughing and joking, having fun. And we ended up, I mean, we just, it was so awful. I remember one Sunday afternoon, I screamed and shouted and actually swore at my daughter. First time ever she seen me shout. The stress of what we'd done to our kids moving, leaving this amazing life we had in Spain. It just all came to a head when she was saying, please don't make me go to school. And I remember saying, I used the F word to my daughter saying, you know, surely it's not that bad. And, you know, I'm just screaming. And it was so horrendous. I ended up in tears. You know, I I don't, I'm sort of, I 
my other half rarely sees me cry, you know, over the 22 years we've been together. I ended up in tears. She was in tears. And I was, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she went to school that we said, look, let's just stick with it because I'm sure it will get easier. And she went to school. I was in the village shop having a coffee. I'd just gone to the village shop, just dropped her off because it was so traumatic drop off, you know, screaming, shouting, kicking, crying, peeling her off me. And I was walking down the road and I'd left my car in the car park of the school with my dog in the back. And I was walking down the road just to go and have a coffee quickly. And and I heard footsteps running. I thought, that sounds like my daughter. And I turned around and she'd got the code to escape from the school, the little press pad from another girl. And she had escaped school. She was running down the road after me, followed by the head, followed by the receptionist. And it was actually a comedy moment because the receptionist, lovely lady, but quite large. So she was, you know, running after the escaped child. And I just looked and I was like, don't laugh. This is really, you know, my daughter's traumatized, but this is really quite funny. But don't laugh. And I said, look, you've got to go back. Anyway, I walked back with her and the head spent all morning with her in the garden, sort of, and then doing Lego because she just would not go into school. You know, she wouldn't have it. That night, also, one, one of the things was she's left-handed and her writing was pretty, she, well, she couldn't write joined up. I mean, she was, you know, she was eight and a half. She'd been writing in Spain, doing loads of art, but she couldn't write very well. And she was expected to write text in class. And all she could do was a few words in the whole lesson. And she was getting shouted at for this. So the teacher gave her, I think it's the, you'll probably know this, the brown fox jumped over the something. It's got every letter of the alphabet in this sentence. The quick brown so she was fox given this. jumps over the lazy dog. Thank you. There we go. That one. And she was given this and said that she had to write it out at home to practice her writing. And I was like, this is like lines almost she's been given. And so many things felt wrong, but this was all in the space of three weeks. And we're like, we've got to give it some time here, you know. And she, that night, she wrote me a letter. And honestly, I've, I've, it still chokes me to think about it now. So she crafted this letter to me and saying, dear mummy, I know this probably won't change your mind, but please don't make me go to school anymore. It's making, anyway, we read this and we're like, we're deregistering her right now. I phoned the head. I said, well, she's not coming back. I said, I'm, you know, really, it's just not, you know, it's just not working. Deregistered her. And the head said to me, oh, we're really sad to see you go because you're, you're such a sort of, you know, you seem like one of the sort of decent parents and, you know, sensible and, you know, it's a real shame. And I said, I just, I can't do this to my daughter anymore. You know, she has changed from the happiest girl in the world to this depressed sort of husk of her former self in the space of what, three and a half weeks. It was just, it was so traumatic for everyone involved, you know, grandparents, everyone. And I went to my youngest daughter's school and I said, you know, and the head said, how's she getting on? I said, well, we're back to home ed now. That's it. We're not. I said, hang on. Do you have any space in year three? And she said, well, yes, but you know, it's sort of quite unconventional. And I said, well, could we put her in year three possibly? It's not in because Germany, for example, well, or schools in the US where they can be held back a year. It's unusual in Britain, it's uh, you know, in little old England, but actually this goes on rather a lot in Europe. And you know what? Many of these European countries beat the nonsense out of us in terms of academic standards. So this whole obsession with age groups yes. in UK schools is completely bonkers. Good for you for asking for that. And I don't, you know, I feel so sorry for your eldest at that point, eight and a half years old and already sobbing about school. That's traumatized. And <laughs> another thing that stuck out was just the electric locks. 
having to have a code to get out of school. That never used to happen. We didn't have locks on any doors when I was at school. You could just walk out if you really wanted to. Nobody really did, but you could. And it just yeah. strikes me that it's ever more and more like prison. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. no wonder children feel the need to try to get out because they can see and feel that they're being penned in. Like this yeah, never yeah. used to happen. This was completely unnecessary. And I'm sorry, but there are no more paedophiles or stranger dangers than there ever were before. It's a percentage of the population, isn't it? So yeah, why yeah. are we locking children in schools? Why do you need a code to escape? Oh, it's just unbelievable. Anyway, don't allow me to knock you off your stride. We're just at the point where you've deregistered the eldest from the rotten primary school. <laughs> and the head at the lovely school said to me, I've actually got a governor's meeting tonight. So this was this must have been early February now. And she said, I've actually got a governor's meeting tonight. Let me have a chat with them. And she called me the next morning and said, absolutely, you know, if you want her to start. And the difference in teaching methods as well was amazing. So we went in. She, I mean, she, honestly, she was traumatized. She had PTSD, I'm sure, from this three-week experience. And also, all the kids were just, sort of, so many of the children were so disruptive at that school because the teachers were shouty teachers and really sort of, you know, strict discipline and but so, so the kids were really unsettled. So there was, it wasn't a nice environment. Whereas this other school was just lovely. And I walked in with her and I said, come on, let's just go and meet who your teacher will be in year three. And the teacher just said to her, look, I don't care what you know or what you don't know. My job is to make sure you know everything you need to know by the end of year six. So she said, whether you know it now or not, it doesn't matter. And I thought, God, that's totally flipped it on its head. What she was told from the other school, you must know it today. And she said, you know, it doesn't matter. And she said, if I give you a test, if there are any tests, it's not testing you, it's testing me. It's testing what I need to teach you. Of course thought, it is. What, 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 what else a could lovely, it, what, you know, what, what else a lovely could it approach. possibly be? But that's real teaching, isn't it? That's what you're it's supposed just lovely. to be. And she was job. honestly, yeah. this teacher was so lovely. Again, a young teacher, probably not yet disillusioned by the system, you know, just young and full of beans and energy and just really lovely. So I had both of them there until, until lockdown. So lockdown happened. And then we, you know, obviously took, I think, in fact, we took them out a week early because we'd been seeing what had been going on and it just didn't feel right. There was some, you know, so we took them out a week before schools closed. What did you see that you didn't like? What was well, happening? I think, unfortunately, at the time, because my other half is on Twitter for work, he'd been seeing the videos coming out of China. He'd actually told me, I think late, Gosh, I mean, it was some November, December. He said, go and do a war shop. I said, what do you mean, go and do a war shop? And he said, go and do a massive shop so we don't know because there will be queues in supermarkets. And I was like, really? You know, anyway, so so luckily I did that. And so we were sort of ahead of the curve when that all happened. You know, we already had loads of loo roll and tins of tomatoes. And, you know, so I didn't have so to get stuck you. in the <laughs> it was we started you. the panic buying <laughs> caused the loo roll shortage <laughs> good for you and it was but, but it meant smart. that we didn't have to we didn't have to queue up i don't like queuing and it meant we didn't have to do any of that sort of but we just took them out because we'd seen the videos coming out of china or he had of people collapsing and stuff and you know we now know they're fake but at the time we didn't it was a bit sort of you know everyone was a bit on edge so we just said no let's just take them out now and then they did this whole sort of Zooming curriculum online and you had to be in the classroom at nine and do, and I just thought, this is a bit weird. And my eldest doesn't like computers and she doesn't like looking at computer screens, people, you know, talking to them. And she said, mummy, can we not do this? I said, it's fine. Look, we've homeschooled before. So I sent them an email and I said, look, we'll just go our own way. Thank you. And we'll see you when schools reopen, but we're just going to do our own thing, you know. 
So that, that was fine. We had a great lockdown, you know, as lots of people did. It was just, we had lots of fun and, you know, living in the place we lived, it was just beautiful. And then when they went back to school, I can't remember when it was, but when the first lockdown stopped and children were allowed back in school properly, I think it may have been the September. I can't really remember. It's all sort of a blur, but I think it may have been the September 2020. And then I turned up at school wearing nothing on my face and a hundred parents sort of staring at me because I was the only one without a mask. I thought this is just weird. You know, we're sort of outdoors in a village car park and I'm not going into the school or not going inside. It just felt so strange what was happening. And then about a week or two later, my youngest came home and she just burst into tears and she said, mommy, I'm not allowed to be friends with so-and-so anymore because you don't wear a mask. And I was, what? <laughs> and she said, because you don't wear a mask, her mummy said that we're not allowed to be friends outside of school. Wow. And this is when, you know, things were just like being, and it was so difficult because I thought, what do I do here? Do I just say, okay, well, I'll wear a mask so you can have friends. But I thought, no, because this is a lesson the girls need to know. They need to realize why we're doing what we're doing. You know, and home ed is a huge, it's so difficult, Sarah, to to detach what's happened over the last few years from home education, because one of the reasons we love home ed is because we're teaching our girls to think for themselves you know, and to explore all sides of things, just doing things because you're told to do them by a teacher. Yeah, by authority, comply, memorize, regurgitate, sit down, shut up, do as you're told. Yeah, absolutely. Why were you the only person out of these hundred people in this car park in the middle of nowhere, not wearing a mask? Well, why were you that way? And all of the others were different. I think I've always, I mean, I, I went to private school but I was sort of asked to leave when I was 11, just because I was just questioning things. And I used to get bored quite easily, probably had ADHD or something, you know, if I was diagnosed way back then. But but I, I bet you did. So I bet you just had a lively and inquiring mind and wanted to well, know yes. why. And your dumb teacher <laughs> didn't have any decent answers. I don't buy a lot of these modern psychological diseases. I think an awful lot of it comes from experience and behavior, not to mention vaccines, but let's not go there just for now. Yeah, but I think yeah. it's because you probably had a lively inquiring mind and wanted some answers, decent answers yeah. to decent questions, and they don't have them. And that's the problem, is it not? So then I was packed <laughs> off to boarding school. And again, it was, you know, for me, it was like sport was the most important thing. I loved it. And I didn't really enjoy the academic side of things, but then I'd get punished by having all the sport and, you know, horse riding and stuff taken away from me. So I rebelled and then I got a label as, oh, she's a, you know, naughty kid. And so I played up to that because it was fun, you know, and I was quite popular and had, you know, had a nice group of friends. But I always, I've always, always, since I was tiny, just I'm not very good at being told what to do. I don't like being told what to do. And I've had, you know, countless jobs over the years. And I've walked out of many a job because I don't like the way people speak to me. And I just think, no, I'm not having that. So I leave and I'm really good at interviews. And I always knew I could get another job tomorrow if I wanted one. So I'm sort of, and this is again, back to what you were saying when I, the podcast I heard you with Tim Price, I think people have lost sight of what's important in life. And I think, you know, being able to communicate with people and presenting well, it's just, it's so valuable. It's Priceless. priceless. And I think kids these days, they, there's so many of them can't communicate. And I just think, God, you know, I've never been told what to do. I've always sort of, you know, found my own way and had amazing jobs, amazing experiences. I've traveled the world with, you know, crazy, like high net worth individuals who employed me because I was rude to him in a nightclub. I was on reception in a nightclub. 
private members club in London. And I recognized this guy. And I said to him, oh, I hear you've been upsetting my neighbors. Where it, because he was on the front page of the local press, you know, somewhere. And he said, oh, and this guy wasn't used to having anyone sort of be cheeky to him. And he said, gave me his business card. He said, I want you to come and work for me. And I thought, well, well, you know, give him a call Plus. in the morning. I had an interview in the back of a black cab in London, told him, yes, I would work for him if I got this amount of money. And if he gave me a thousand pounds cash to join a gym. And he was like, okay, right. Book some tickets. We're going to India on Friday. <laughs> like, what the hell? Why not? Wow. And I just had this mad few years for this guy who was very, very difficult, but it was, I, you know, traveled and did all sorts. Basically, I was his, I didn't even have a title. I think I was his private PA, if you know, but I was rubbish at admin. So I never did any admin. I would just book things, buy things. He had a boat that was being uh, mended down in Cornwall. So I'd go and oversee that, buy his daughter a pony, just, just random things. Wonderful. But, you know, everyone who worked in his office in London couldn't quite understand the relationship. I'd swan up in my jeans and, you know, and sort of, you know, come in and just, and the way I spoke to him, he told me one day he phoned up and was really rude to me on the phone because his dog had gone missing. And I just said in front of the whole office, I said, F you, his name, and put the phone down. And everyone was like, and I just walked off. Two days later, he called me to apologize. <laughs> I was like, you want me to come back? And I just think, you know, so many people in life think that they have to do a certain thing because that's what they've been brought up to believe. And I've just always gone against the grain and just, you know, I suppose... I suppose being a bit of a rebel. Hi. Good for you. I love that. Well, my my uh, eldest has very... just walked in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless. It's very underrated. They're classed as soft skills, but they're not soft at all. They're vitally important. If you don't have good presentation skills, good diction, nice manners, if you're not a fun person to work with, and sometimes if you're not prepared to turn around to your boss and say, that's out of order, mm. then you're no good. Like I firmly believe that when I want someone to come and work with me or for me, I want the right character first. Skills can be acquired in most cases, not yep. in all cases. Yep. Perhaps rocket scientists might be a bit more problematic, but I would still hire on character first and we'll sort the skills out later. And I'm not the only one. I think many of the most successful people in the world actually value character over and above raw skills. So yeah, I think it's really, really important that we recognize this. And if you look at the state of the children coming out, look at the 16-year-olds coming out of state schools, grammar schools, and even private schools now, they're more interested in makeup and hair oh than they gosh. are in anything else. And you know what? Their diction is appalling. They've got nothing to say for themselves. They're totally obsessed with their little telly screens, as I call them, oh, their smart goodness, devices yeah. that are totally not smart. They play computer games. They've got nothing to say for themselves. They've been nowhere and they've done nothing. At 16, I'd been all over. I'd been representing the county at cricket, at football. Was I particularly talented? No. I was just hardworking and had a damn good attitude and was quite nice to get on with. So if you're quite nice, you'll make 12th man. You know, being 12th man for the county cricket team is no bad thing. I actually did go on to play in, in, in my own right. But it, it's just the idea that if you do have nice manners, if you are presentable, if you can speak well, if you can articulate yourself and if you're fun to be around, this stuff does count. The thing that I've so. experienced because of it is way beyond anything. And people always like, like say, oh, is that because your academic skills? Well, no, my academics were absolutely <laughs> excellent, for, particularly from the school I came from. I got straight A's and A stars almost from my high school, even though I went to the local comp and I'm from a council estate. We had no internet because it hadn't really been invented for people like us at that time and no encyclopedias because we couldn't afford it. So, you know, it's complete nonsense. And I, I actually think that children who have been home educated are going to massively stand out against their peers in the future. This is what we say to our girls. It's just, it's not going to be difficult to be way, way above 
all your peers who've come through the system because they are, and again, I don't want to be, I don't want to be cruel because there are so many lovely children out there who are in the system. But it does seem like after my experience, and we'll move on to the hair and makeup quite soon, I feel, after my experience with the secondary school system in this country in the last few months, it's absolutely shocking what children these days think is valuable. And it's their looks, it's what they watch, it's what they who they're influenced by, the influencer things on TikTok or YouTube or and it's just it's absolutely shocking. I was horrified to learn. I was reading the book Irreversible Damage, an amazing book by Abigail Schreier. It's called Irreversible Damage, and it's about the trans craze that's particularly affecting teenage or preteen girls, girls in particular. In reading that book, I found out about pro-Anna websites and groups on, and that means pro-anorexia. Oh gosh. And right. pro-Bell, no, which is pro-bulimia. I'd never heard of this. Oh, gosh. What they're doing is no. they're encouraging young girls, particularly young girls, to be better anorexics, as in to be more anorexic wow. and bulimic. And they egg each other on and they're doing all of this privately away from their parents. And Abigail Schreier compares this to the trans craze. Now, I don't want to particularly get into that today, but my main thrust of it is that this kind of socialization that they're doing in these indoctrination centers, everyone else tends to call them schools, is extremely dangerous. They're egging each other on on smartphones with their little WhatsApp groups and all kinds. I know you've got some hideous stories to tell about that shortly. But before I get there, when did you realize that the pandemic, I call it the pandemic, when did you realize that it wasn't what you were being told? What was it for you that made you go, hmm, there's a problem here? Compared with those videos of people dropping in the streets yeah. from China to not wearing a mask six, nine months later in, in that car park, what was it for you? I think it was finding, I think it was Alison Pearson podcast from The Telegraph. She was interviewing, in fact, Sue Cook was probably the real wake up moment for me. The good old sort of crime watch journalist from the BBC. She'd worked for the BBC for 30 years and she was interviewed by Alison Pearson and Liam Halligan. And she just said, she, it, that, that was when I found out about the Trusted News Initiative. And she said she was horrified by the censorship going on. And I think it was her interview that probably really woke me up, although my other half was, you know, not believing it from before that. And, then I found Ivor Cummins, who is a data guy from Ireland, and he was just saying, look at the ONS data. You know, this is nothing political here. It's just look at this. And the average age of death, I think, at the time was around 82. And I just thought, but, you know, flu. OK, so this is another bit of the story. So, you know, I thought flu kills people. You know, flu can kill all ages of people, but we don't put it on the news 24 hours a day and have a prime minister and health advisor standing up saying how many numbers are dropping dead every day. Because if we did, we'd all be terrified of flu or pneumonia or whatever the current thing was in the winter season. So these few things sort of alerted me to this. But also in Spain, we'd had in 2018, just before we left, we'd been over to England for Christmas, flown back early January. And my husband and children were sitting in a row of three and I was the other side and they had a toddler, the seat behind sneezing and coughing over them the whole time. Now, I wasn't really aware of this because it was one of the few journeys on a plane that I didn't have to look after the children because I used to do it a lot by myself. So I was reading a book or whatever. And when we got back to Spain, so we flew on the Saturday evening, on the Tuesday afternoon, within the space of two hours, all four of us went down with the most horrendous illness I've ever had in my life. That was Aussie flu. 
so the we sort of, I mean, it's all a complete blur that week, but we managed to sort of, you know, feed the girls a bit of cucumber and bread and the odd egg and stuff. My other half was so ill. He was just, you know, a mess. And then we all got better. Me and the girls got better. And about eight days in, he took a turn for the worse and basically ended up in a coma. You know, had blue lights to hospital. He was vomiting brown stuff and it was horrendous. And I had to phone his family. They all flew over and we thought he was, that was it. It was so traumatic, the whole experience in a Spanish hospital, not understanding the medical speak, you know, although my Spanish was quite good at the time. But, and, you know, he was wired up to everything and they were going to transfer him to a neurological unit up in Madrid or Granada or somewhere. And it was so awful, the whole experience, but I sort of held it together for the girls. In fact, I was looking at flats on the promenade thinking if he does come round, he'll be in a wheelchair. So we need to move house. And, you know, all these weird things that you do trying to be normal. And I took the girls to school because they were in this village school, Marrow, at the time. And the parents said, okay, well, what are you doing? Why? I was I'm trying to be normal (laughs) for girls. You know, I'm trying to hold it together. And so anyway, he was in a coma for about three days. And then he sort of came round and um, was in hospital for another five days. And anyway, so it was a really horrible episode. But even though we'd been through that, we don't have flu vaccines. We don't, I don't worry about flu every year. It was just really, really unfortunate. And we were really unlucky. He's super fit and healthy, you know, and he came round and had he been overweight, had he been unhealthy, who knows. But so, so we had that, you know, I had that in my head and I was thinking, this sounds horrific. But then when I looked at the data from Ivor Cummins, so it doesn't stack up that we should all be terrified. And then Boris Johnson had said in January, February, well, you know, th- this isn't going to be dangerous for everyone. It's just going to be the earth. And then something happened. They decided to change. And I don't know why. So it was around June, July, but also having had the experience of nearly losing my, my other half, um, I still wasn't going to take a flu jab. It was just unfortunate. So the thought of taking a vaccine for something that the average age was 82 just didn't seem right. And the fact they were talking about... Well, the average you know, age of death was beyond life expectancy, wasn't it? So well, yes, the, the av- exactly. The average so, age of death from COVID-1984 was above life expectancy. I mean, hello, I'm a maths teacher. I'm quite a simple person. So when all this was kicking off in March, April 2020, February, March, April 2020... I went straight to the ONS data, the raw data. It's very easy, actually. They're quite nice people. Many of the people that work there, they're very helpful when they're allowed to be. Depends what you're looking for, by the way. But anyway, I realized there was going to be some sort of con whereby anything that was remotely respiratory was going to be classed as COVID-1984. So I thought, well, there's no point looking at how many quote-unquote COVID deaths there were because I know they're fixing yeah. it because where are the flu deaths? Yeah. <laughs> there's no flu deaths. Yeah, so this, I thought, right, stuff noticed. this. And I went straight after the all cause mortality. So I just said, right, I want to know in simple terms, how many dead bodies are there and mm-hmm. how many dead bodies do we normally have by the end of March in any mm-hmm. given year? And I compared that to the five year average and the 10 year average. And it was lower. It was lower in 2020 at the time than it had been in the previous years, five year average, 10 year average. So I was fuming. I was shouting this from everywhere and getting shot down and getting in all kinds of trouble. But I was just doing something that's very, very simple. 
how many dead bodies are there? How many should we have? Because if there's a real pandemic, a real pandemic, mm-hmm. then there should be a lot more deaths. There should be a lot more dead bodies. And dead bodies are kind of hard to fake. Figures, because I do mathematics, I know they're easy to fake and manipulate. Yeah. But dead bodies are quite hard to manufacture. The British government, I believe, did quite a good job of it. But that's another story for another day. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. let's fast forward now. Let's get to secondary school. Unless well, there's anything else you want to add from just primary. Just quickly, no, so, so just to quickly... <laughs> Because the primary thing is quite important, I think. So after lockdown's finished and everything, it was back to normal then. And my daughter was in year six, so she had a different teacher. And the year six teacher was really, I mean, she was a bully, basically, you know. And we had, so from being really happy at this school, she just started becoming really unhappy. And she just said, you know, mummy, every week I moved and I'm sat next to a child with what's now called SEM. And out of a class of 31, there were seven children who had SEMs, special educational needs. So my daughter, because she was so just bright and sweet and helpful and lovely and kind, was put next to one of these children for seven weeks out of 10. And she was getting shouted at by the teacher for not completing her work. Her hair was being pulled, her right, you know, her work was being scribbled on. And she was being, you know, by told these off SEM for not kids completing next work. To her. So they were but stopping exactly, her from by the working. SEM. Yes. Right, and then the teacher right. would single her out in class and shout at her and 31 children would be staring at my daughter, you know, because she'd be getting told off in front of the whole class for not completing her work. And I thought, hang on, this doesn't sound right. So I said, try and sort this out yourself because I don't want to be one of these interfering parents. Try and, you know, ask if you can be moved. If that doesn't work, ask to see the head. If that fails, I will come in. She tried all this. I ended up sending an email to the teacher And I used her first name because I've never been good at calling people Mrs. or Miss whatever. You know, I'm 50 nearly. And I just think, you know, this woman was late 30s. And I thought it just seems a bit weird addressing her as dear Mrs. So I just used her first name and in this email. And I said, you know, my dear, my daughter has tried to fix this herself, but she's really struggling. Please, could you just move her this week? And then I'll come in, have a chat next week. But, you know, I want to try and sort something out now. Because I understand there are seven children in your class who have SENs. And, you know, I understand that everyone has to sit next to someone, but this has been seven weeks out of 10 now. That afternoon, I got an email back from this teacher. Now, bearing in mind, I'd never had any email communication with her. I barely knew her because of lockdown. And my daughter was old enough to go into school by herself. So I used to wait in the car park and send her off. I didn't know this woman. She sent me an email and there was no hello. There was no, what do you call it, address? No, hello, you know. It was just, I take offense at you labeling my children with S-E-N. I've only ever heard this term because of this school, because there are so many of them here. And she said, I don't want my, we are, we are in, it was like she copied this agenda off the BBC woke website or something saying we are inclusive, diversive. We welcome all sorts in our school. La 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 la. And it was basically a lecture to me. I thought, wow. My other half was horrified. He was so angry. He's like, go in now and see them. I said, no, 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 hang on, hang on. I went to see the head because I thought I can't even reply to this. I forwarded that email to the head. I said, look, I'm really, do you accept that your teachers, first of all, it's basic bad grammar. There's no address on this letter. Hello. Or, you know, it's just straight in with text, which is really rude. And I said, can I come and see you? Because I really don't know how to reply to this. And I don't want to. I think this is something you need to get involved with now. Plus, there was one desk in the room for children with learning difficulties who felt they needed to go and sit by themselves. So I said to my daughter, well, if you're sat next to so-and-so this week, pick up your stuff and go and sit at the desk that's for people who need to be alone. So she did that the next day. 
And the teacher stopped the whole class and said, okay, why are you sitting there? And my poor daughter, she was just didn't want to, you know, make a thing of not wanting to sit next to this particular child. And she said, unless you can explain to me why you've moved there now, go and sit where you were. And I thought, would you do that to a child who had SEN or learning ah, difficulties? But what you're missing, Nancy, is that diversity and inclusion and equity is not for you and your children. No, diversity, inclusion not. and equity is for <laughs> other people. It's just for the special yes. people. It's just for the people who are trans or the people who have a special educational need. It's not for you. Inclusion doesn't include you. How silly. You know, I'm obviously being um, sarcastic, this, this, but that's this the attitude exactly of the these point. people. And yeah. I just thought, so, so they yeah. made her, she made her feel really small. And this was her sort of MO, basically. She would belittle my daughter in front of the whole class on a constant basis to the point where she was just, you know, her confidence was being knocked. So the head said to me, nothing to see here. I had a few meetings with the head. She said, nothing to see here. So then I started doing my own research and talked to parents outside school. And lo and behold, carbon copy of what had happened to two other girls who were both really sweet you know, pretty from lovely families, just really sweet little girls. This exact thing had happened over the last few years. And, you know, from the kids who were so bright, they went to grammar school. And one of the mums said to me, had it not been for lockdown, we would have taken our daughter out because her confidence was at rock bottom. Because this woman seemed to take pleasure in sort of knocking down and sort of, you know, belittling, deflating these sweet kids. Disgusting. And it wasn't, you know... It wasn't that my daughter was one of these kids who's like, I know the answer, but because she was so bright, she always put her hand up and she actually turned around and said to her, yes, I know you know the answer. Let someone else have a go. So my daughter looked at me, she said, mummy, why will I bother putting my hand up again? It's I thought, disgusting. well, exactly. And also just for the people who are outside of the UK, the grammar school business here, you have to sit an examination called the 11 plus. So if you can get into grammar school, it's because you're some of the brightest children in the country. We do assess children where possible, where there are grammar schools and the brightest ones do get invited. So that's a big deal. If your son or daughter is able to pass the 11 plus, that indicates that they're a very, very good academic standard just for those who are outside of the UK and perhaps don't know that. This is not an isolated incident, Nancy. I'm sick of hearing this, quite frankly. But your story is extremely important because you yourself are so articulate. You are highly intelligent, highly articulate. You have bright, lovely children. And it's wonderful to finally hear somebody who has had all of these experiences that I have been banging the drum about for quite mm. a number of years now. Mm. Somebody who, of your credibility, has come along and said, actually, do you know what? I'm going to talk about this because it's not right. And I'll just quickly come in on the SEN thing. There are many, many children who have special educational needs who are in mainstream schools in the United Kingdom, and they should not be. They mm. cannot be properly supported there. They need specialist care. And to try to shove that into a mainstream school, all that's doing is bringing the average standard of a mainstream school down. Now, on the other hand, there are some SEN children who are highly capable. There are some mm -hmm. high-functioning SEN children, and the statement I've just made does not apply to them. They, of course, do know how to behave in a classroom. They are high-functioning, and they just have some minor problems that can mm. be accommodated within a mainstream school. But since the late 80s, early 90s, when an enormous number of SEN special education on these schools were closed down, we have had this infiltration, and it is causing massive problems. And um, Similarly, a large number, I would say the largest number of children who are quote unquote have an SEN statement of special educational needs do not have special educational needs at all. They have poor parents who do not know how to manage behavior. And mm -hmm. that's a very controversial statement, but I have experience of literally hundreds of children out of thousands that I've taught that this applies to. There is nothing wrong with them. They are poorly parented. They are poorly behaved and they disrupt others in 
class and it is not acceptable. They are wasting your child's time. They're wasting whatever pitiful education that you might even get in a state school these days. They're wasting it. They're disrupting it. And this is not acceptable. And you're not allowed to talk about it because as your poor daughter found out, diversity, inclusion and equity, what I call the die religion, because that's where it's all going to end up, die, die, die. The die religion is not, oh, diversity is not for you. It's not for people who are well-behaved, who are hardworking mm-hmm, and have the mm-hmm. answers. Oh, no, inclusion and equity doesn't include you. It's fake. They don't even understand the meaning of these words. It's an agenda and it's completely monstrous. If that's the end of the primary stuff, do take us on to the secondary. If not, please fill us in on any other little details that you have of this delightful teacher. (laughs) Just to quickly say as well, I then got an email from the head to say, could I please stop talking to other parents outside of school about this? And I thought, no, because you're denying there's a problem here. And I found out for myself from talking to parents outside of school, this has gone on for four years. So I just thought, no, hang on. And then we so we actually said to our daughter, look, you know, you can be homeschooled. It's fine. Just home educated. It's really up to you. You can leave. And she said, no, mummy, because I've got some nice friends and I want to stay. And we said, fine. So we, she had a two week half term. She went back on the week after half term. I walked into the playground with her to the classroom door. The teacher, instead of saying, welcome back, Lou, did you have a nice time? She put her hand up as a policeman hand in my daughter's face and said, wait there, let the other people settle. There's a bit of a, you know, bottleneck at the door. That was her greeting to my daughter after two weeks. And my daughter had said to me, mummy, I don't want to go back because I'm worried I'm going to be sat next to this boy who was the most disruptive boy in class. I said, oh, come on, you know, don't be so negative. Let's have a positive mental attitude as we're walking to school. And sure enough, she walked into the classroom and saw she was sat next to this boy. So after this greeting from her teacher, sitting next to this boy, she grabbed her bag and ran out. The teacher said, no, you're not allowed to do that. And I said, yes, she is. We went home and I said, look, it's totally up to you. She goes, can I just try tomorrow? So I went to see the head and she said, I'll get her moved. And that'll be about money. We walked in and the teacher, she walked into the classroom. Then she decided she couldn't handle this anymore. So she went to walk out. Now I'm standing in the playground. The teacher put her arm down like this in front of the school, blocking my daughter, walking out where I was. You're not allowed out there. I said, yes, she is. So my daughter ducked under her arm, ran out. She said, mommy, please, can I leave school? I said, come on, let's go. Best idea you've had. (laughs) So we left. And then my youngest had left before because she knew we were talking about homeschooling. And she said, mommy, can we be fine? So she'd actually left, I think, in the June. So I'd always, you know, already home educating one. But the funny thing is, there's an art fair that happens near us every year. And my elder said to me, mummy, they say that we're the best behaved school. And she said, do you know the difference in her old school and this school? She said, none of the teachers shouted us. This is when she, before she had the bully teacher in year six. She said, none of the teachers shouted us, so we don't shout. And she said, but whereas the other school, all the teachers were shouty. And she said, so the children shout. So the art fair, these kids were really disruptive. And this particular school, her new school, the kids were all so well behaved compared to the other school because the teachers had a different attitude. And it was just a really sort of, you know, an observation from my then sort of what she must have been nine about the difference in in teaching methods. But anyway, so that's primary. So we we home educated. She'd already taken the 11 plus, passed with flying colours. So she got to choose which school to go to because there's a few down here. So she was really excited about going back into the system because she thought there's so much support on offer and various things. And then we decided, well, if one of them's going to school, the other one is as well, because having one in, one out was quite difficult because you couldn't enjoy the benefits of being out of the system. 
So that's where we were. And we ended up, so this September, my eldest went to the grammar school that we'd chosen. And my youngest went to a private school just down the road in year five. So that's where we are this September. It's gone back into the system and, and all very excited about going to school. And shall I start with day one? Oh, oh of, yes, please. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> so we're all very excited. Positive mental attitude. Yes, you know, this is re- really great. And um, I picked my daughter up from her first day at school. First of all, we don't have mobile phones. I mean, the, you know, my children don't have mobiles. As I say, I think we're lucky. Brought them up in Spain, very outdoorsy. There's no devices. You know, they don't have their own mobiles at all. And they use computers. They're not complete Luddites, but mobiles are just not a thing. And she went to school and every single child had a mobile in their bag. So that we'd chosen this particular school because they said no mobiles. We thought, well, that's a good thing. But she said, they've all got mobiles, mummy. I said, but I thought they weren't allowed. She said, they're not allowed to look at them. But as soon as the teacher's back's turned, they all have their mobiles and they're texting each other in class. So there's zero concentration going on. Now, there are 32 children in her class at grammar school. She came home on day one and she said, now, I think I've made up the good citizenship part because I think it was actually called a citizenship class. But good citizen sounds more Orwellian. So I think that's in my head what it's called. Citizenship class. They had a list of nine items, I believe. So it was government, teachers, parents, BBC, Sky News, documentaries, YouTube, Facebook, social media, a few things like that. So the list and they had to put them in order of, you know, who do you trust the most? So they're all in the classroom and they had to put their hands up. So the teacher called out parents and my daughter put her hand straight up that, you know, parents number one. She was stared at by pretty much everyone in the class as if she was mad. And she just said, I couldn't believe it, mummy. She said there were some people who were putting their thumbs and sort of waving between good and bad. So it's thumbs up. That's right. So thumbs up, thumbs down. So parents, there's like loads of people put the thumbs down. Do you trust your parents? No. So my daughter went to put her hand up with her thumb up for parents as number one point of trust. And she was sort of, you know, frowned upon. And then they had all these various lists and the teacher called out the BBC and she said, mummy, it was amazing. The children were cheering. You know, they all put their hands, thumbs up. Number one, BBC, your most trusted source of information. The teacher actually said, the BBC are the most trusted source of information in this country. So anything you need to know, they will basically not lie to you. They are, you know, they're the truth sellers of the country. And they had to write their, their, oh. well, this, this is a thing. And after, you know, we, well, like actually, WMDs in Iraq. Well, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Dr. Kelly, Jill Dando. Who else have we got on that infamous list? What a, that, that is a ridiculous statement. But it was like, how dare she say that? Yeah. Indoctrination centers are literally teaching your children that parents are less trustworthy than the BBC. Yeah. This is education in the United Kingdom, ladies and gentlemen. The BBC is, quote unquote, more trustworthy than your parents. This is what they are doing to your children. They are taking your children. They take them psychologically first and physically later. Absolutely disgraceful. This is an Orwellian lesson. It is. When I read your email, I (laughs) <laughs> it's not the only time I've seen this, but this was one of the best. This was one of the best examples I have seen. I thought, yep, yeah, there we go. That's it in a nutshell. So my daughter put parents number one and documentaries. It's like, well, it depends who makes them. You know, we've trained her well. You have to very think for yourself. Yes. Yep. And she put the BBC and the government at the very bottom. 
And the girls either side of her, they were astounded. I mean, they couldn't believe their eyes. And they're like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? And it's just like, she's so different from all the kids in this class. Now, also at break time, they were just saying, what's your favorite, Starbucks or Costa? What's your favorite, McDonald's or Burger King? And my daughter, we don't go to fast food restaurants. We just, we've just avoided them. It's a family joke. When they were tiny in Spain, we used to drive past McDonald's and say, if you look at the sign, your eyes will become fat. <laughs> it was just like a thing we did, you know, as a sort of, you know, to avoid. I actually dragged my daughter when she was four. We'd been to a flamenco concert in Spain, four or five, um, late night thing. And I was so hungry. And there was a McDonald's right outside. I was like, my tummy was turning with hunger. So I just, I sort of dragged her into there and we were standing in the queue and she just said, mummy, it smells really bad in here. Please, can we leave? I was like, okay. So that was her experience of McDonald's, you know, four or five years old. Anyway, so it, we just don't go to those places. So all these kids, all they did, they all had hairbrushes in their bags. They were constantly brushing their hair, talking about McDonald's and whatever, and the shops and Claire's accessories. What do you go to here? So it seems like shopping was their number one sport. These are so year sevens, which are 11, 12 year olds now. And it was such a depressing sort of first day. So the citizenship class, then she was told that there's a, a club for LGBT plus. In fact, we'd been to an open day in the summer, like a sports gathering day for all the new intake. And one of the mums on the bench sat next to me said, I'm so excited about LGBT club. My daughter, so-and-so, can't wait to join school so she can join the club. And I just thought, this is very weird. And then all the other mums and the teachers who'd set up this club said, yeah, isn't it brilliant? And they had a giant pride flag hanging outside. This is summertime this summer. Giant pride flag in place of the school flag. And I thought, this is all a bit weird. You know, they're 11, 12-year-olds. And the woman who'd set up this lunchtime club was also promoting Stonewall as a charity for that was who they were fundraising for. Now, I've done a little bit of research into Stonewall over the years, and it's not something that I want to be promoting in schools. To flesh out what Stonewall is, as far as your research tells, because there are people who won't have heard of that from so abroad. So Stonewall thankfully. was set up, I think, in the 60s, 70s. It was a charity set up for to promote gay and lesbian equality. Because this is my understanding of it. So it's set up. So it's a very good cause. It's like, you know, let's all have equal rights and da, 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 da. But I think then they reached their goal. This is my understanding of it. I think Douglas Murray writes, writes well on this subject and they reached their goal. And then they thought, well, we need to do something else to keep this quango, whatever it is going and the money flowing in. So let's now we'll push for trans rights. So it's sort of gone. But what they're doing, they are one of the reasons there's all this literature in schools, in primary schools now, in kindergartens, with two daddies, two mummies. And it's just confusing. It's like, you know, we've got friends of all sorts of shapes and sizes and diversity, religion, all this stuff. In Spain, we had good friends who were two mums who had two, you know, twin boys, and one of them bought the eggs online and the other one had them. And just it's like, agree or not, people are different. And I'm very sort of, and we try to bring our children up to respect everyone, you know, whatever they do, it's like people are people and let's be, you know, but it's a very strange thing when you have that being pushed in school. And I thought, I don't want my daughter being taught that this is normal because it's not, It. this sounds like I'm going down the, you know, sort of a hate speech type thing now, but it's quite difficult to live like that. It can't be, you know, if you There's are no truly such thing sort as hate of, speech. There's no such thing as hate speech. What's it called? Body, body dysphoria. You know, it must be an awful place to be. And it's like, let's, of course, let's, let's, but not, don't push it down our children's throats. Just leave them alone. And then they had the whole 
drag queen story time in libraries as well, which was going on at the same time. And I was like, hang on a sec, what's this? And it's like men dressed in not many clothes at all, waggling their bits and bottoms in three, four, five-year-old faces in libraries in England. And I just, this is just not nice, is it? It's like, you know, call it's me totally extreme, but I'm, I'm not sure. It's like, I don't want my kids learning about this stuff at such a young age. It's like, They're let children, them just be they? children and mm-hmm. play. You know, this is this. And this was another thing. So the first day my daughter came home from grandma and she said, mommy, nobody wants to play. I said, what do you mean? She said, they just sit in huddles, brushing their hair and talking about what videos they watched on TikTok or YouTube or do, 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 do. And nobody will play. So what she did, she would take herself off marching around school at break time, lunchtime. And there was a queue for the, so the block that she was in her classroom, there was, I think, two loos for four classrooms. So every break time, there'd be a massive queue. So she just took herself off to the other side of school where there were a massive block of 15 loos. So she'd go to the loo over there, have a walk around school, and that would be her break time done. And on the first or second weekend of her being, it must be the first weekend of her being at this school, we bumped into one of her cohorts in town with the mother. And this girl came up to her and said, why do you disappear all the time? Where do you go? Where do you go? What are you doing at break time? You know, and all this like, and you know, my daughter just, she didn't want anything to do with this girl because all they do, they were all the same queuing for one loo, talking about YouTube influencers, TikTok, da, da, da. And my daughter had no interest. So she went to book club. I said, go to book club library, go and find like-minded people who don't have phones. She went to the library and she was told there weren't enough people, maybe next next month. But, you know, you can go to the... So LGBT. in the library, you... Let me get this straight. So in the library, there is not enough people for a book club. Wow. No, it was, it was wow. one of the lunchtime wow. clubs. Wow. <laughs> How can you not have enough people for a book club in, in an educational establishment? What are you talking about? How do you learn then? Or do you play video games? Do you eat McDonald's and uh, do your hair and hang out on your phone? That's learning now, is it? Crazy. I mean, the, 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 this is, you know, and this was all in the first couple of days. And then we also, what was the other big thing that was there? Brainwashing. So when we went to the open day in summer, there were posters all around the canteen, school canteen, saying vegans live on average six to 10 years longer than meat eaters. And I thought, hang on a sec. What? And there were all these posters. So it obviously been a, project of one of the years all these posters around the canteen basically saying stop eating meat you're destroying the planet i thought wow we eat meat a lot <laughs> it's it's like we live like people used to live i think sort of unprocessed food you know meat veg but just basics and we eat healthily but i thought i don't want my daughter being told that she's destroying the planet because she's eating meat and it was a very weird sort of messaging anyway. She said that they were giving them vegetarian food. They were taught at every lesson. So whether it was geography, history, so they seemed to get in the fact that you shouldn't eat meat. And it was, you just said, wow, this is really odd. And she went to the canteen, she queued up and she wanted bolognese. And she got there and the only thing left was vegetarian slop. So she didn't eat. I mean, she just said, I, I didn't want it, mummy. And but it was like all these things. I thought, how dare you say that? Because where's the research behind that? And putting that message up there, some kids who can't think for themselves will see that and think, oh, right, that's it. I'm going to be vegetarian. It's advertising. It's advertising to minors. And it's, it's, that. it's propaganda. It's propaganda. Yeah. And what do yeah, we know about advertising? Yeah. It works. And what's dangerous advertising? Propaganda. It works. 
This is exactly what I've been trying to warn people about. The stuff that is on the walls of your children's classrooms and on the walls of their canteens is affecting your children. Just because you have different rules at home and just because you might speak to your children about different things along different lines at home, it doesn't mean they are not being affected by this constant pushing of state-sanctioned propaganda. It is disgraceful how dare it sounds to me like there's not enough meat in that school because if it's run out and there's people who still want it, then it would appear to me that they're not making enough, are they? There's plenty of veggie stuff. It's like during the so-called food shortages, all of the fake food, the veggie food was all that was left on the shelves because even in a, a food crisis, no one wants to eat well, that. Well, this is the thing. People the vast would, majority people, don't anyway. This is what she said. She said, mummy, nobody likes it, you know, which is why she was sort of pushed to the back of the queue. And again, there were no sort of queue monitors or anything. So all the big girls would push in and they'd get all the meat. So it's like the sort of newcomers, year sevens, were sort of at the back of the queue and she'd been waiting half an hour and then ended up with nothing. So that was one of the things. So it was the meat, it was the LGBT club, sports. So we thought, great, loads of sports in this school. And my daughter's super sporty. The first sports lesson was spent sitting on the hall room, the sports hall floor, learning all about rules and regulations and just talking to them as if they were stupid. You know, if you leave a bag here and we have a power cut, what might happen? Someone might trip over the bag. So we don't do that. We don't do this. So the first sports lesson was spent going through rules and regulations. The second sports lesson, was, oh no, can I, sorry, rewind. Just quickly, the most horrific thing that happened on day one was that she was given a number. So she was number 24 out of 31, 32. And they had to walk in number lines and not speak between lessons. That was day one. prison. You get a number like being a prisoner. Isn't that funny? There are lots of prison analogies in schools, aren't there? (laughs) Unbelievable. And they had an intruder drill, I believe day one or two, where the teacher threw the desk up against the door and said, everyone hide, be quiet. Uh, We we don't live in a place where this happens. Anyway, so that was day one. They had an intruder drill. Then on day two, they had a fire drill and they all had to line up on the field outside in their number order. And my daughter turned round just to look, see what was going on on the field outside. And a teacher, she doesn't know, shouted at her from the front of the crowd of 800 kids or whatever, face the front. And if I see you doing that again, you'll be pulled to the front of the line. You can't even turn your head. She scratched her neck in one class, just, you know, itchy neck. And she was told to stop fiddling with her hair. Stop playing with your hair. And, you know, my daughter, her hair just is on top of her head. It's not something she's ever bothered with. You know, she brushes it occasionally. Same. It's just, it's not something of importance. Whereas I think they just assume that all these girls, because they all had hairbrushes, that if they did anything vaguely near their head, they were fiddling with their hair. That's because so everyone's she was treated out for that. the same. Because your children are not individuals. Your children are just state sausages. By the time they finish with them, they're, oh, they're all just like this. They're all just like that. They're not individuals. How disgusting. I must say that the intruder drills are new one on me. It's something that I know is very prominent in the United States, but it's not something I'm familiar with in the UK. I'm going to look into that. Thank you. It's a, so a new one for me. She spent eight days at grammar school in total. The second, she had two fire drills and two intruder drills. The second intruder drill, her teacher threw the desk against the door, said this could be for real. Everyone hide, everyone be quiet and hide behind bookcases, whatever. At the end of it, the teacher actually said, was anyone scared? And they all said no. And she goes, well, I was. I just think, why are you doing this? This isn't learning. And the second sports lesson was lining up on the field and walking across to go and see where a football pitch was in orderly lines and then being spoken to like complete dimwits saying, you know, what happens if we meet someone? We might intimidate them a big crowd. So you will stand aside and let them pass. This was the second sports lesson. I think the third sports lesson 
was them running around the field at the pace of the slowest person. They weren't allowed to sprint. So there's no racing allowed. And this is, you know, this is another reason why we took them out of primary school. I forgot to tell you this part was because my daughter, they were both super fast and they would be racing the boys on the field at lunchtime. And her teacher, the bully teacher, said, you're not allowed to race at lunchtime. And the sports lessons were, nasty, were nasty going bully. at the pace was were the sports lessons were going at the pace of the slowest person in the school. So it's not. And to this is why anyone. we won't win medals in anything in the future because you're not allowed to excel. This is communism. This is Marxism. This is communism. This is what they do. They dumb everything down and they hate sport. They hate sport and they hate mathematics because in sport it's always very obvious who the best is. Because what will mm-hmm. happen is Nancy, you'll get a tennis racket. I'll get one. I'll play you, and one of us will win. And then the winner will go and play the next best person, and then one of you will win. So we always know who the best player is because you can't cheat. It's very, very difficult to cheat at tennis. There are too many people who are too good at it. At the end of the day, you have to get out there on court and show your stuff. And the powers that shouldn't be that are operating the state indoctrination centres and private schools, they're no different. It's all the same these days. It's just like medals for losers, isn't it? Everyone yeah. gets a medal. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. All that's doing, that's bullying people who happen to excel at sport. Some people who excel at sport often do badly in academic subjects, not always, but often they do. This is their chance to shine. This is the thing that they excel at. This is the thing that they're good at and they should have their moment. It's not okay to decide that everyone's the winner and, oh, we'll train at the slowest pace. Do you think that's how the military operates? Do you think that's how the Royal National Ballet operates? Do you think that's how the National Youth Theatre does things? Do you think that's how we've ever achieved anything great ever? Disgusting. I always go on about schools being the average of the average. What they're seeking to do is to average everything out to its lowest possible well, this is how we They're felt. They were absolutely bringing everyone down to the lowest level so that people couldn't shine. And one of the really, so before lockdown, they had a sports day. I think it must have been their first sports day at that, you know, the free school, primary school. And it was great fun. All the parents there on the field and everyone cheering. And it was just brilliant. And both my daughters were in a team that won the whole day. There were four teams. And they announced the winners. So it was sort of, you know, third place something. So anyway, the roar was immense and it was just brilliant. It was heartwarming and everyone's cheering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lockdown happened. The first sports day must have been maybe two years after that. And they actually did this weird thing called carousel, which is where they basically wear the kids out doing nonsense games before the actual races start. So they spent 15 minutes doing these weird games that nobody wins at. It's just wearing them out. And then they started the races and they actually said, we need to keep the cheering down because it's just not fair on the losing team sort of thing. And when it came to announcing the winner, again, it was my daughter's teams who were the winners of the whole thing. They actually, and I can't remember off the top of my head what happened, but they diluted it so much that they didn't really announce the winner. They announced the second place and the third and fourth. So then it was like, okay, well, obviously that the team who hasn't been mentioned are the winners. But it was a real diluting of the experience of winning because they, they counted down instead of counting up or whatever it was. But we were like, wow, that's a, they've done that on purpose. So the kids can't celebrate as they did two years ago. It was awful. It was really, I mean, honestly, Sarah, there are so many things. I'm probably leaving half them out, but so, so Isn't many things that happened in the space of a few years with us at primary schools and then the secondary. And then we haven't even got on to the private school yet, year five. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to that. Just before we reach the pinnacle, I think this is the pinnacle of the horror, the horror story. Um, 
learning to be gracious in defeat is an extremely important life lesson because mm-hmm. very often there'll be people who are better than you and at many, many things. And mm-hmm. learning to be gracious about that, learning to figure out where you went wrong and how you could do better next time is the most important part of learning. It's actually more important than winning. I always mm-hmm. learn more when I lose than when I win. I too have a sports background like yourself and I'm a huge advocate for sport. I love sport. But what is going on in schools is, is not sport. It sounds like the caucus race from Alice in Wonderland where there's no winner or some kind of kooky game you'd play at the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. But this is absolutely insane. I mean, that was the point. You know, that's what Lewis Carroll was telling us. <laughs> this is Batty. You know, there must be winners and there must be losers because yeah. there always has been and there always will be. But what is more Marxist than that? We're all the same. There are no winners. We're all equal. Yeah. What a load of garbage. It's I'm so rubbish depressing. at the high jump. I'm five foot one. Of course I'm rubbish <laughs> at the high jump. So what? I'm good at other stuff. You know, like this is just, it's not acceptable. It's, and it's so soul destroying for people. I remember teaching in a primary school in the northwest of England and there was this lad. I'll call him Ryan because I can't remember his name. He was probably a Ryan. And he was a bit naughty and a bit cheeky, but he was fun. He wasn't very disruptive. He was. M- Finally disruptive here, there and everywhere. He's a live wire. He loves sport. The only thing he could do academically was science because he was really good at electronics. He could build circuits way, way better than any of the other kids. So he used to love that when we got the science stuff out. But the only other time where he didn't have a miserable experience was sports day and PE lessons. And this guy was amazing. He'd win the 100 meters. I think they do like a shorter race at primary as well, like a 50 meters. So he'd win both of those races. He'd win the 400, the one lap of the track, the longer race. He could throw a cricket ball the farthest. This kid was amazing. And it, you know, his face lit up and it was the one day of the school year where he wouldn't be in trouble and he'd be the hero and he'd be the champion and everybody loved him or almost everybody loved him. Right. And to take that away from those students, those students, especially the ones who do struggle with academics, that's not the case with all sports people, of course not. But for those children who excel at the sports, not the academics, it's cruel. It's beyond cruel. I just, I cannot, it's inexcusable behavior. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the really horrifying parts now of the so, of your private school experience, because plenty of people so, think this is just state schools or this oh. is just in America or whatever. They don't want to hear this because it makes them confront their own decisions and their own thought process as parents. So we, we after eight days at the grammar school, my daughter, I, and again, it was really strange because I know people work. I know parents have jobs to do and, and things, but I was dropping my daughter off at school and I was the only parent there. I mean, everyone else was on buses now and, you know, sort of, you know, they'd suddenly grown up from year six to seven. And so I would wave her off in the field and, you know, give her a big smile and she'd go off and, you know, sort of skip into school and she didn't have any friends. And, you know, she would say to me, you know, I just wish I could find one, one girl, mummy, that, you know, I get on with that. Because they're not mean, there's no bullying going on. It's just that she had nothing in common with them and she found them all incredibly dull. So she didn't have a bad experience. It was just all these things put together. And then she walked into school and it was after the Queen's, the long weekend for the Queen's funeral. So it was the Tuesday. I think we all had the Monday off and she just walked over the fit and I just saw her and I thought, and another thing, so we'd chosen this particular grammar school for a few reasons, but one of them was that it was known for languages and stuff. And because, you know, we lived in Spain and we thought, great, this is a way for her to keep up her Spanish that dwindled from being here for, you know, nearly four years and not doing anything apart from the odd bit of Duolingo. I thought, this is great. And her form tutor was a Spanish lady from Madrid. And I thought, this is amazing. So she's going to have, you know, 15 minutes every morning with a Spanish lady from just up the road from where we lived in Spain. Couldn't be better. You know, they can have a little chat in Spanish or whatever, whatever. So after a couple of days, I said, oh, have you, you know, had a chat with your form tutor about, she said, no, she hasn't spoken to me. Okay. 
And she wasn't going to approach her in a class of 30 whatever kids, you know, and I just thought it'd be a nice thing to do that we put this big thing about Spain on our application. And, you know, she might have just said, oh, you know, hello, or said something in Spanish. No, didn't speak to her. She had five hours worth of Spanish lessons over the eight days she was there because they were double Spanish occasionally. And she said, mummy, I put my hand up for everything. And again, she's not a loud, showy kind of me, me, me type girl. She's, you know, very quiet. So she just put her hand up every question in Spanish she could answer, put her hand up. And she wasn't asked one answer in those five hours of Spanish. The Spanish teacher who was her form teacher didn't speak to her at all. And she was just doing this to try and get the questions, putting her hands up. And she said on one of them, the teacher had written Martes on the board Tuesday, and it was actually Wednesday, Miercoles or something. And she'd done it on purpose. And so she put the wrong day on the board, Tuesday or Wednesday in Spanish. And my daughter recognized straight away. So she put her hand up. Now, I'm aware that teachers have 30 odd kids to ask the answers to. So they're not going to get round to everyone in the space of a week. But she was the only child with a hand up straight away. And the teacher waited until someone else put her hand up, asked this other girl, yes? And she said, oh, I think you've got the day wrong. I don't know what it is in Spanish, but you've put the day wrong. Well done. You get a merit point. (laughs) Nice. This is reminiscent of her year six teacher at primary school, just absolutely ignoring her. This is equality. You know, this is what they mean when they say equality. This is what these people are doing. Long march with the institutions. We've been warned about this yeah. decade after decade and we ignored it. And look at where we are now. That's oh, what an awful way to treat a child. And, and I just thought, if you someone's know, talented, you'd use them for good. You'd be like, oh, would you mind? Sh-? You might have a conflab with a child who's got some skills in real Spanish because they've actually lived there and say, oh, would you mind sharing some? Maybe if you're not confident today, maybe next lesson, could you come yeah. and talk a little bit and help Nothing. us with accent and you would utilise that invaluable resource in your classroom, wouldn't you? Well, I'm not a word. I didn't even ask her where she lived in Spain. And I just thought that's, it's almost, it's not bullying. What do you call it? It's like a really sort of, is it passive aggressive or something? When oh, there's it is just no, it is bullying. It's an underhand, nasty kind of bullying. Right. Yeah. It was just so sad. And I just thought, you know, it would be really nice for her just to have a conversation to keep up her Spanish or something. And I don't expect her to be singled out as special, but just say, oh, you know, where did you live in Spain or something in Spanish? But nothing, nothing. So anyway, we left. She left. So so this particular Tuesday morning, she walked across the field and then she just turned around and I was getting in my car, which is on the main road. And I just, she came running up to me and said, mummy, please, can I come home with you? I said, of course you can. This was your choice. You took the 11 plus. You wanted to go to school. Totally your choice, you know. But again, younger sister having an amazing time at the private school just down the road <laughs> because there were a class of 15, seven girls, eight boys. And it was a lovely prep school, you know, very outdoorsy, sporty and beautiful teacher, lovely, lovely lady who was, she must have been sort of late 50s or something, but really lovely And so she was having a great time. So then we thought, okay, look, we've decided to go down the school route. So what about we put both in the private system? Let's try that. So she had a two-day trial at the private school in year seven. And they said to me, we're very sporty here. We're not allowed mobiles in class at all. So they hand in at the beginning of the day so they can't look at them in their bags and text each other. I thought, well, that's definitely better. We'll pay through the nose for this. (laughs) So she went in on day one and she had two trial days, which she really enjoyed. And she said, yes. So she stayed. And then she said she loved all the teachers, all the lessons. They did classics and things. And she was top set for everything. So she was put in the top set for all the lessons. And she really enjoyed the teachers. And she said, but mummy, I don't understand. All the girls are really mean about the teachers. 
And they're all really mean about all the teachers. And she couldn't understand why. Coming from a home ed system where all the parents and kids mixed together, it was not like us and them. And she was really miffed about this. And she said, because the teachers are all really nice, mummy. Anyway, all the girls had mobiles, not in school, but they spoke about what they were doing the night before on their mobiles. They all had hairbrushes in their bags. Now, to me, this is year seven. The current year sevens are the first children that have come up through the state system with having mobiles as totally acceptable in years sort of three, four, five, six. So I truly believe after what, you know, what I've seen over the last few months is that the year seven cohort are the ones that are really affected by the mobile phone use in primary school because they are all totally, they can't concentrate. They had iPads on their desks in school and, you know, boy to the left of Lenny was watching rugby and a girl to the right was playing games. Another kid on in front of her was playing something else. So they have the iPads open. They don't have textbooks. So they're supposed to have access codes to Pearson Education or something. And I just I thought, come home with textbooks, you know, and do some sort of, you know, mark the pages and refer to things you've crossed off or none of that. And because she was a late starter, because she, you know, a few weeks in, they had a problem with the IT department couldn't get her online so we you know she'd come home with science homework and we were going on google to find out how to do experiments with and i just thought this is strange you know private school with no textbooks and then she said you know i just don't have any friends mummy she said they're all they're basically the same you know as these kids that were at grammar school year sevens they're just interested in youtube and tiktok and da 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 she said, they're not mean to me, but she said, I've got no interest in them. So she would take herself off around the playing field at lunchtime and sit and write car number plates down going past them. It's weird things she just enjoyed doing at lunchtime or go to the library by herself. Now, the teachers would say to her, come on, let's find you some friends and sort of force her to join in a group of girls who weren't actually playing. They were just sort of sitting and talking. And she, so, so she sort of knew how to play the game. She just said, oh, I just pretend I've got friends because otherwise the teachers get involved. and." Anyway, so this was sort of, you know, I don't know, mid-September she started. And there were lots of really fun things going on at the school because it was very sporty and there were lots of nice things about it. And the teachers were fabulous. You know, they had a great music department and things, you know, it's like my kind of dream school. So everything I expect to be coming from a school what was there. So I can't fault the school in, in the school itself and the teachers. But the, so my year five daughter had her birthday mid-November and we decided to invite her the girls in her class because we've never done big parties we've always just had friends back for lunch or whatever and play in the garden or on the beach or and we just said she said oh you know can we have sort of a garden party it's going to be dark but we're just you know maybe maybe you and daddy and you know and sister's friends can jump out of bushes and scare scare us or something just a you know silly party in the garden and we said great so we invited them all back and i'd said pick up sort of nine o'clock friday night and a few of the parents posted on the whatsapp oh we can't do that grandparents are babysitting and i said Look, if anyone needs to stay then that's fine but pick up early the next morning because i had to go to work so they all decided to stay now we've got quite a small house so my eldest daughter had to decamp down the road to her friend's house and we had eight seven or eight girls staying in two bunk beds and on the floor now Again, I don't want to be rude because it's, you know, I think these girls themselves were quite sweet, but the damage that has been done to them by mobile phones and social media and just parents having no clue what's going on on YouTube is, is immense. And it was absolutely shocking. So first of all, I picked them up. I've got a sort of a van because I can see seven people. So my dad picked 
two of them up plus my eldest daughter. And then I took the rest. And from the minute they got in my van, one of them just went, oh, my mum has got a much nicer car than this. She's got a Tesla. And I thought, oh, okay. Anyway, move on. They all had their phones out. So they were texting each other in my van. So by the time I left the school car park, I said, hang on, hang on a minute, girls. No, no, no. This is for my daughter's birthday. Hand your phones over. We're not having any tech. We're not doing mobile phones at my house. Oh, why can't my daughter's name have a mobile? No joke. 10 minutes down the road, I'd had all these kids telling me how safe YouTube for kids was. Facebook Messenger for kids, I think, is another one. My mum says this is really safe. Why can't so-and-so have a phone? Why can't she have a phone? 10 minutes down the road, I wanted to buy my daughter a phone. I thought this is peer pressure. And this is why my, you know, she was 9, 10 that day. This is why she'd come home from school saying, mummy, could I have a phone? I was like, oh, awful. And these kids, they were sending each other text messages. So I'd said no to phones. And my daughter looked at some of the messages they were sending each other in the back of the van before I said, give me all the phones. And they were saying things like, nobody cares about my feelings. You really hurt me today. Nobody understands me. These are nine-year-old girls, nine-year-old girls. I want to die was what one of them said when she got to my house because somebody had upset her because something they said at school, she broke. So basically that Friday evening, I had six or seven, however many there were girls breaking down in hysterics between the hours of say 5.30 and 8.30. Every single one of them cried over something apart from my daughter and my eldest daughter and these was are nine and looking on girls. in horror. Nine and 10 year old girls. So when I'd, um, unbelievable. And all they were talking about was nobody cares about me. And they were running up and hiding and one of them would cry. And then another one screamed at the top of her lungs and was honestly, I thought her leg had been chopped off. She was screaming so loudly. I went in and said to her, what's wrong? And she said, I've got slime in my hair. And she screamed at the top of her lungs. She had a tiny bit of slime in her. I was going, it's okay. It's okay. My friend, who's a TA at the village school where my girls used to go, had come up to help with the garden party and jump out of bushes and scare them. And she was horrified. Now she works, you know, she's a special needs TA in, in this school. And she couldn't believe what she was hearing. These sweet girls going, I'd rather die than be without my mobile. And it was, so one of them got mud on her trainer and sobbed. Another one said, oh, your parents are really rich. You live in a really big house. And the other one burst into tears. And it was just this, I've never in 12 years of having children have seen anything like this. And I've always had an open house. We've always had loads of kids back, stay over. But I've never experienced this kind of emotional outpouring, incontinence, narcissistic kids. They were, all they cared about was me, me, me. But they kept saying about being kind. This was this mantra, but we're kind and we're, oh, I'm kind to you, aren't I? And I, they don't even know the meaning of the word. It was like, they've just been taught this stuff without experiencing what, what it means. It's like what they're, and so I had all these kids in hysterics at one point or another. And then I came into my kitchen at about half past nine, 10 o'clock at night. And my daughter was watching the Grinch cartoon on the sofa with one of the girls. And the other ones were all in my kitchen taking videos. So they'd all got their phones and they were making videos in my kitchen. Now I was just like, at this point, I was at the end of my tether, but I thought, calm it, calm it. I said, right, girls, you've come here for my daughter's birthday. Give me your phones now, please. One of them had an iPad and a mobile, nine years old, doctor's daughter. She said to me, I would rather die than be without my devices. And I said, well, if that's how you feel, pack your bags and I will take you home right now. I said, in fact, all of you, at this point, I was just like, I can't be doing the patient. I said, right, all of you, give me your phones or you're going home now because you did not come here to make videos in my kitchen. 
And they were like, oh, we, we don't want to go home. We don't want to go home. So right, hand your phones over. But all of them were parroting what they've heard. I'd rather die than be without my mobile. Life isn't worth living without mobiles. I said, what do you do on your phones, girl? What is it that you do? Oh, you know, we watch videos and we message each other. And they were just inane, just so, so dull. And Children also, how sad anyway. Skills. They used to go to dancing classes. They used to go to scouts and guides. They used to learn how to sail a boat. They used to learn how to climb trees, how to make tree houses. They used to learn how to play musical instruments, not just messing around on their phones. When you're young, you said this earlier about languages, it's much easier to acquire new skills and knowledge when you are younger, typically. That just doesn't work for everything. It depends on your level, yeah, depends yeah. on the subject. But typically speaking, you need to take advantage of that sponge-like quality that you have as a child. Your children need to be doing martial arts, playing musical instruments. They need to be doing real things in the real world, not messing around on the internet, watching stupid videos. Well, this, this they is don't ex- have any real skills in the real world, including emotional intelligence, which is a vitally important part of your psychological makeup going forwards. Is it? This is the thing. And I just thought it was really shocking to see how easy how they didn't care that they were having meltdowns in front of people they didn't really know, like me, my partner, my friend who's the TA at the local village school. And they were just having these sort of extreme meltdowns and then they'd be fine the next minute. But I think, again, I'm sure it's because of this is probably what they're watching on YouTube and things that it's okay to behave like this. You know, my feelings matter. And it was all about feelings. And anyway, so fast forward to the next, so, so fast forward to midnight, I am now at the end of my tether because they are screaming and shouting and and there's no sort of discussion. It's all screaming and shouting to be heard over each other. And I went into my daughter's bedroom. I said, girls, please, I have got to get up for work. Please keep the noise down now. You know, it's midnight. I think you've had a, you know, you can talk, but just please keep the screaming down. And they did. At 10 to 7 the next morning, my alarm went off for work and I woke up to screaming I thought, what on earth is going on? And I went into the bedroom and one of the girls looked at me and goes, oh, my alarm went off at 6.45 for school. So everyone woke up and they're all sort of screaming and shouting and da, da, da. Anyway, so it kicked off from there. They're all awakened up. And I was just like, oh my God, I don't even have a minute to have a cup of tea in peace. I went off to work. Now I'd said to everyone, they need to be picked up 9.30, 10, because basically my other half didn't want to be left with a house full of screaming kids. And all of them sort of came, you know, between 9.30 and 10. And then I got a call from my other half, I was working and he said, where is so-and-so's dad? Because he was supposed to be there. And I got a message from this dad who's a Marine. Okay. So, you know, high up in the, the US Marine Corps. And he said to me, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to be there. He's basically going to be two hours late because he'd put the name of my house in his sat nav. And this is again, not thinking for yourself. He put the name of my house in his sat nav. And instead of going to the county that I lived in, which I'd made very clear the directions and where I lived, it's very easy to find. Mm-hmm. He'd gone to a totally different county because there was another house with that name in that county. Wow. And again, I was just wow. like, what is wrong with these people? Generation. And, it's just, it's moronic, oh, isn't wow. it? All this wow. tech is making us stupid. Yeah, All of this tech thinking. is literally making us sick. I mean, Oh, we we wow. lived 20 minutes away from his house and he'd gone to a different county. I mean, thank you for sharing. Anyway, so, so my, my, my husband then phoned me. This was about, I don't know, before, I was still at work, sort of late morning. And he said, can our daughter talk to you? I said, of course she can. And she'd held it together the whole party. She'd been horrified at the behavior that had gone on. And then she burst into tears and she just said down the phone, mummy, I'm so sorry. I said, I said, don't be sorry. I said, listen, you didn't know what they were going to be like. And she said, but mummy, I'm only friends with them because there's nobody else there. I thought, oh my goodness me. And she, do you know what she said? She said, mummy, I miss my homeschool friends. <laughs> I thought, 
right, I said, I'm coming home. And funnily that afternoon, I mean, not funnily, amazingly, I think, because this is where we would then realise what was, we needed to go back to home ed. We'd arranged for homeschool party for all the home ed mates to come over at two o'clock that Saturday afternoon. So we had, yet again, we had a house full. We had, I don't know, eight people in the house. And the difference, I mean, my other half came down to the kitchen. He had the best conversation he's ever had with a 10-year-old boy. He said, I can't, you know, this boy was amazing. I mean, they were talking about all sorts, about Star Wars, about this, about that. And he said, what a lovely, just amazing kid. And it's like, well, this is, sorry to say it, but it's like homemade because parents and kids and you mix with all sorts of ages. And this is what Paul was saying on your podcast. And I thought, hang on a sec, it's not real life school because you are sort of caged into these groups of your years and you don't get to mix with other people or other kids. And I thought, home ed, we are all just one sort of big happy group from babies so up to grandparents. Maturity. Everyone just gets involved with everything. So, so the party, models, right? absolutely. So the party ended up with four of the home ed parents staying. We all had a great time. It was everyone sat around the table, all the kids having lunch and eating and laughing. The laughter was amazing. No screaming, no histrionics, no crying. They were here all afternoon. And my other half actually came down. He said to me, it is like a different species. I mean, they were his words to me. He said, it's like a different species. And I thought it's a bit harsh, but yes, because the empathy, the consideration, the just the sort of teamwork that goes on in, in the home ed life, because you are just thrown in with everyone. It's like everyone's got siblings. You've all got different things going on. There, there's, and also back to what you were saying about kids having skills. I mean, what's really important to us throughout their life. And when we listen to audiobooks in Spain from when they were tiny, the famous five, both my girls speak really well. They have very, very good diction. And it's, it's something that we think is really, really important being clear. So for us, it was sort of audiobooks, jigsaw puzzles, musical instruments, just so many things, languages, martial arts, sports, all these things that we thought were really important. So, you know, my eldest has tried everything, everything she tries, she's brilliant at, but she hasn't found anything apart from this year. She was actually in a play in, a, in our village play that went on for a week and she was the only child with a main part. And she won the award of the sort of the best performer of the whole company because she was just, you know, she, she found, she found herself and she's quite shy or she's quite quiet. But on stage in front of 200 people, she just came alive and she said, mummy, I absolutely loved it. And she was incredible, you know, and she's an amazing singer. We just said to her, you have got to learn an instrument. We don't care what it is, but we've got two pianos in the house, get playing. So she started that this Christmas. My youngest is, I mean, she's a comedian to start with, but she's also, she's started playing piano in lockdown. And she's brilliant now. So we've spent the whole Christmas. She's given us Christmas carol concerts pretty much nonstop. And she started singing at the top of her lungs as well. And we've been doing impromptu Zoom concerts with grandparents, you know, up country, you know, sort of half 10, 11 o'clock at night. We'll just video call them. You know, they'll be watching a thriller or something. We'll say, do you fancy a sing song? So we've been having sort of the best fun. I can't tell you these three days of Christmas were just brilliant. You know, just so much going on. And I just think it's, there's no tech in their lives, you know, they're just so funny and alive and full of life. And so many people who meet them, everyone who meets them just say, it's amazing. Your girls look at us when they speak to us. You know, it's like they hold your concentration. They actually look at you when we're talking to them. Whereas so many kids these days, they're just like, because they've had this from such a young age. You know, screens, babies screen now time. with mobiles. Yeah, and absolutely. You just think, I mean, I heard Steve Hilton um, a couple of years back 
I think it was Cameron's ex-advisor, and he said, if I made the law, I would ban smartphones for all under 16-year-olds. And I completely agree with him. I think that the damage that had been done, and this was, it was stark, you know, the, one of the home ed friends had a phone and she threw it at her mum when she walked into my driveway and said, just hold that because she's not interested in her phone. It was just something she has for doing, you know, the odd apps on and stuff, but she wanted to get involved with what was going on here. You know, we've got monkey bars in the garden. So they, they're always sort of out playing. We've got trees and stuff for them to climb. We've got hens. They're just always out muddy. And it's just, it's sort of a, you know, a simple life, but it's, they're innocent kids. We've sort of managed to, their childhood is full of wonder. And it's As it because be, right? we're not, they're not looking at screens, you know, and yeah. we actually offered my eldest a mobile when she went to school. We, I bought a burner phone off Amazon, about 15 quid. I said, mummy, I don't need it. Why do I want a phone? Either you're going to pick me up or granddad will pick me up or grandma will pick me up or I'll be with teachers. I don't need a phone. And I think she, she realizes how much I despise, you know, we watched the queen's funeral. And I love all that sort of pomp and circumstance. I think we do it so well, the music and everything. And we, but we were all saying everyone's doing this. People have gone all the way to London or Windsor or, and they're all, they're all doing this. And you think, watch it on the BBC iPlayer later. You'll probably see yourself in the crowd. But why have you gone all this way to watch it through a screen when you've got this whole and everyone? It's like a sea of people doing this. So, you know, it's just, it's so destructive. And there's a really dark side to, smartphones and social media, isn't there? I think there's an incident with some quite young children to do with one of the schools in a WhatsApp group. Could you dig into what happened there as well as you can without giving too much away? Yeah, it's a difficult it's, one it's because truly I've got, awful. you know... Yeah, um, it's a truly awful I, I, story. I think I'm just going to keep it to TikTok. You, you can add the bit afterwards, but I, I think it's just, you know, I've, I've got to be careful what I say, but basically I bumped into a child we knew for two two years ago who had turned into a sort of child woman, you know, plastered in makeup, hot pants and just, it's like, wow, I had to do sort of a double, triple take because I couldn't believe it was the same girl. And a few weeks later, I bumped into her mum who told me that she'd been sent basically very inappropriate stuff on a, a year seven WhatsApp group in the September of last year that had been sent to all the people in this WhatsApp group and the police were involved. And it was, it basically changed her. And I just thought that you can't unsee stuff like this. So this sort of relates to a conversation I had when we took both our girls out of the private school mid-November. I went in to meet one of the heads and just a really, really lovely lady who has children herself who are all in their twenties. And she just said to me, I am so glad I don't have children today because she said, it doesn't matter what we say to parents about the damages of social media and basically smartphones in general. She said, we cannot control what goes on outside of this school. And it doesn't matter. And I said, you know, I have nothing against you as teachers. I think you're wonderful people and it's a wonderful school. And she actually said to me, I think your daughter is head girl material. You know, we're so sad to see her go. But she said, I, you know, I understand why you're doing it. And she said, I sit here day after day with parents of 11, 12, 13 year old kids who are, you know, self-harming, suicidal. This is a private school. And she said, and the parents had no idea what content the kids were watching on their phones. And these kids have had their phones since they're eight, nine, 10 years old. And she said, I'm just horrified at the lack of awareness of parents. And she said, you know, we've had, I mean, she'd been to, three memorial services of teenagers, not at that school, but people she knew because of social media bullying. And 
she was really upset. She had tears in her eyes and we had this really long heart to heart. And she just said, I completely understand why you're doing it. And, you know, maybe she can come back for GCSEs. And I thought, well, actually, for me, it's protecting them now when their minds are so influential. What's the word I'm looking for? Influential. So yes, that one. Thank you. <laughs> so, and keeping them away from stuff that is just not appropriate now. And I think when they're older, they can deal with stuff like this and just choose not to look at it. You know, they can when their minds are more developed and they're maturer and they have more of an understanding of, but I just think when they're so little, I don't want them seeing this stuff. I don't want to have to explain anything to them. And it was really eye opening that the head of this private school said to me, I completely understand why you're taking them out. I thought, wow, that's validation. If ever there's, if ever I needed some, because she said, we, we can't protect them from what goes on. And she said, in fact, the only way, cause I was talking to her about the kids watching videos in class that were not less you know that were not you know the rugby and the games and the things on their videos on the iPads and she said do you know how I teach my class now I go to the back of the class and I teach the backs of my students it's the only way I can see what what is open on their desk and I thought I'm not having that I'm not paying good money for my daughter to be spoken to her back that's the only way you can protect it's absolutely shocking. And my, my view would be to do away with all tech in schools, apart from computers that were on the school system, because obviously we all need to know about tech and have textbooks. Go back to good old textbooks, good old books where you write in, you know, and just go back to the old fashioned way, because it seems to me. And she said to me, I have never, ever, ever experienced, you know, she's been in teaching for many, many years. And she said the rate of depression in kids is like, a, you know, it's unprecedented, something we've never, ever seen before. And, you know, it's all come off the back of social media and this narcissistic. She said, it's like everyone needs a stroke now constantly, a constant stroke mm -hmm. to say that you're okay from people you don't know, from strangers, from likes on Facebook, from this, that and the other. And she actually mentioned dopamine about the self-harming things. Dopamine hits constant from, yeah. you know, when people should be playing it's musical instruments, they should be doing sport, they should be doing in getting all their dopamine hits from skills that they've learned, that they've put hard work into, you know, reading books. I mean, it's like, you know, I asked these, nine, 10 year olds driving back to my daughter's birthday. Oh, don't you read, you know, do you like reading? No, I'm addicted to Candy Crush on my mum's iPad. And I just thought, what? This is a bit of Jesus. And the next day, so this is, I forgot to tell you this part about the party. So the next day I got a call from this doctor whose daughter had left her iPad and mobile phone in my house because I confiscated them. She'd forgotten them in the rush to get out in the morning with the grandparents. And I said, oh, look, don't worry. I'll bring them into school on Monday morning. She goes, no, you don't understand. She's staying with the grandparents. She needs her devices. Mm. I said, what? And she said, my, my right? mum is having, yeah, yeah. My mum's having them all weekend. She can't be without her devices. I'll come around and pick them up. <laughs> Honestly, I was just, me and my other half were like, this is this. And, and that was sort of, you know, it was that plus the, there are a few things that weekend that were just turning points for us. And we thought, no, no, no. And both, in fact, my eldest turned around to me when she'd come home on the Saturday afternoon for the home ed party. And she said, mummy, this is why I don't have any friends at school because they're all like that, but they're in year seven. You know, it's just, they're the same, but just older. And they're constantly doing their hair. And even the head of the school had said to me when I went to talk to her about moving from grandma to her school, she said, oh, we're not like that here because we're very sporty. The girls don't care about their appearance. Now that well may be true for year eight, nine, 10 upwards, but the year sevens are the ones that have come up with mobile phones as a standard practice from primary. So that's to me, you know, that's why I thought it was sort of, I just thought, I don't want my girls having these as their sort of peer groups. And they said, we miss our home ed life. And I thought, actually, so do I, because you know what we've been doing, Sarah, from 
you know, from having this sort of amazing, lovely life. We'd gone from September. I was getting up at six in the morning to get ready to get all their bags packed for one sport or another and da, 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 getting them up at 6.45, shouting at them to rush out the door to get there so we'd beat the rush hour traffic to get to school, pick them up at five o'clock most evenings, they did after school clubs, get home, homework, eat bedtime. And my youngest said to me, mummy, all you do now is shout to get up in the morning, to have breakfast, to get out the door. And she said, I really miss our home ed life. And I thought, so do I. I've just turned into this. And I completely understand why parents get so stressed and give their kids mobiles and devices, because it's really stressful. This hamster wheel of, you know, just the school life and homework and all these things they have to do. And I just thought, it's not a reflection of real life, because you don't spend that long in your job. When you're older, you don't do a full day and then come home and do more. You know, I mean, lots of people do now, but it's sort of, that's not, I just thought, you know, I want them to have a childhood and to experience and to find things they love to do. It's absolutely stunning listening to you relate this. I hear these stories all the time and people say to me, oh, it's anecdotal. These are anecdotes. This, no, no, I'm sorry. No. I have a data set now. I am so tired of hearing this stuff over and over and over again. It is everywhere. It is rife because it's system wide. The people who are teaching your children now, on average, are a lot younger than they used to be. Yeah. They have been through the Marxist indoctrination centres called mm -hmm. universities. They are just continuing to propagate the same nonsense that's been forced down their throats. And this whole tech thing is extremely dangerous. Children are now having their primary attachments with other children rather than with their parents. There's a yeah. great book written by Dr. Gabor Mate and Dr. Gordon Neufeld called Hold On to Your Kids. If you are a parent, a teacher, a coach, if you work with children or have children, you must read this book. Socializing your children in school is the most dangerous form of socialization you can possibly flirt with. Your children should not be being socialized in school. This is why these children who are from the school that came to your party were all appallingly behaved. My words, disgustingly behaved. They have no idea how to behave around adults. They have no idea how to interact with other human beings. Home-educated children are head and shoulders above because they are like children used to be. They can make yeah. eye contact. They have interesting things to say. They know how to behave yeah. in adult company. It's okay to still be a child and run around and make noise, but you know not to do that inside around the dinner table with other adults. You learn yeah. how to behave yeah. and your role models need to be people who are worth emulating, not some silly little girl with a hairbrush and a phone on TikTok. Yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah. My heart bleeds that the parents won't make the time to read, just read this book and take action because you will not regret it. We don't know how to fix these problem children, the suicidal children, the self-harming children, the Gosh. depressed children, you know, and often parents don't even know about these things that are going on in schools. Then you have what I call the predatory organisations like the LGBTQ agenda. All right. They are coming after vulnerable children, the children who've been made vulnerable by what they've been exposed to online because mm -hmm. parents are not in charge of what goes on in their own household. And I urge people to read this one book, Hold on to your kids, Dr. Gabor Mate and Dr. Gordon Neufeld. It will, will change up now. your life. It's a beautiful book. Well, it sounds to me like you've learned a lot of this through real experience rather than from a book. Absolutely. I've listened to Gabor Mate, I think, on a couple of podcasts. I think we had Jordan Peterson or something years ago. In fact, you know, I stopped listening to podcasts a while ago when I, when both girls were back to home ed, because I thought I just need to be, I need to be happy. I need to be mentally sort of, you know, I don't want to be dragged down. And during lockdown, I was getting into all these podcasts like Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson and stuff. And they're really, really interesting people. But I thought, actually, I just, I just want, you know, a clear head and my own thoughts, really. And sort of, you know, it's my own experiences that have made us come to where we are now as a family. 
as well. And I just don't have time now running a business and home ed as well. But also just another point about school. So my daughter, my year seven daughter, you know, her friends from the primary school have all gone off to secondary schools, grammar schools. And and it's really interesting because I say to the mums, oh, how's so-and-so getting on at school? Oh, she's okay. You know, she likes bits of it. And then I see the child and I say, oh, how are you getting on? I hate it. I hate school. <laughs> Honestly, it's just, I don't know any child. I mean, there's one girl who we know who is slightly autistic. I, I don't think she is, but her mum says she is, but she seems to be getting on well at school. But that's one out of all of the year six leavers that have gone to school. All the rest have, the, every time I ask them or see them, they hate it, but they just go because they have to, you know, and this poor girl, she's so sweet, who was one of the kids with SEN. At, at my, and then this was another thing, the email sent to me by the year six teacher at my daughter's primary school was so insulting, and basically telling me I had a problem with SEN kids. The fact is, we were friends with these kids outside of school because we all live in the village. They're all back at my house, you know, playing with the hens. And I have no problem at all with them. I had a problem with them sitting next to my daughter, disrupting her, and then my daughter being shouted at because of it. So it was like a real insult because I thought, we have everyone, you know, we're like open house. Yeah, I love all sorts back in my house. And it's just, it's sort of, you know, differences makes the world go round. It's a very sort of, but it was a very strange time. Well, listen, thank you so much. I think you're you know, incredibly brave coming in and sharing all of that deeply personal information with myself and, and my listeners. Thank you so much for the time that you've given. I appreciate you are a home educator, you're a mother, you're a wife, you're a businesswoman. I know that time is precious, but thank you for making that time because I'm sure thank it will you, help an awful lot of people to really formulate their ideas and opinions and hopefully inspire them to go and do some more research. So thank you for giving that time to us. I just um, thought, can I just say one more thing as well? By all means. Just interestingly, I, well, the first one of my family to go through the whole unschool home ed route. And then my brother, whose daughter was eight at the time, liked what we were doing. So took his daughter out of school to home ed. And then my other half's sister has three children and she liked what we were doing. So she took her three children out of school when they were eight and 10 twins, eight and 10. They've never been back to school. So all the cousins, all my daughter's cousins are home educated. And my 14-year-old niece is now doing biology GCSE. She got 95% in a test paper. They're just thriving. And also all the things that are available for home ed parents, the groups that are everywhere. I mean, we do such a diverse range of activities. It's fun. And we work alongside. But the parents who work, you know, I didn't work for 12 years and now I am working, have a business. So it's sort of, you know, it's all a bit crazy but you know we work it out between us you know some of our friends the parents work at the same time on a certain afternoon so I go and do my admin at their house and all the kids play board games together there's ways of working this out there's such a helpful community as well so anyone thinking of doing it you are not alone it's growing isn't it because I think your local what do we call them the elective home education officer in your area it sort of let slip what was that quote when she, was she called me. She, she, yeah, she sent me an email because after taking our girls out mid-November, I got an email pretty much straight afterwards saying that she'd been alerted to the fact that we'd removed our children from the education system and, you know, she had to know what we were doing. So I phoned her. She put her mobile number on the bottom of the email. I thought rather than prolong this whole thing, I'd just give her a call. And we had a really lovely long chat and she said, thank you so much for calling me. She said, I can cross you off my list of concern now. You obviously know what you're doing. She said, any help we can be, please just call me. But she said, I have, we have a very small team and we have unprecedented numbers of people pulling their children out of school this term. And she said, we're swamped. So she said, thank you so much for calling me. <laughs> she said, if we, if we can help, let me know. And I thought, how lovely. 
I'm hearing that from all over the UK. There's lots of people doing it very quietly and doing a fantastic job, but people are pulling their children out in huge numbers now that they've seen what the powers that shouldn't be are truly like and how they're treating our children. So well done to all those hardcore home educators out there. <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic job you are doing. You don't need to do anything else. I started off talking to Nancy before we went live saying that, you know, you don't need to do anything else. If you're home educating, that is enough resistance. That is the definition of non-compliance. And you are doing the really hard work that the people who are awake, who don't have children ought to be helping, pitching in. And they're the ones who can stand up and be noisy and throw rocks like I do. But if you're a parent and you're home educating, just rest assured that you are doing more than enough. You're playing your part and well done to you. If you are interested in home educating, I have a free course available on the 5th, 6th, 7th of Jan. So that's Thursday, Friday and Saturday night, 5th, 6th, 7th of Jan at 8pm UK via Zoom. If you go to my website, sarahplumley.com, that's sarahplumley.com, you can find a way to leave me your email and you will get the link roughly 45 minutes before we go live, 5th, 6th, 7th of Jan at 8pm. And I'll give you three nights of training in home education. It's for people who've never done it before. It's for people who have home educated before, but are looking for interesting and innovative ways to do things. And everybody is welcome. It's free for all. And I'll be taking that training for those three nights. I have nothing left to do, but to wish you all of the very best for 2023. Thank you very much indeed for sharing your story, Nancy. I really appreciate that. And I very much look forward to working with many, many, many more of the listeners in 2023. Remember, as I always say, the state's power comes from schooling. The people's power comes from education. Happy New Year. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination. 